Many thanks to all those who have put the extra effort into our, our music this Christmas season. We've enjoyed a, a number of solos. We enjoyed a stringed ensemble. Is that what you would call it? Last Sunday? A, a choir this Sunday. And we're certainly thankful for this. Uh, you're in for a real treat next Sunday. It's an all-men's uh, quartet, Cody, Randy, Gary, and Ike, and um, <laughs> wouldn't that be something, though? I think. Why are you laughing? I think we should encourage them after the meeting to perhaps give that some serious thought and a whole lot of practice. But we are, we are thankful for, for those who put in the extra time and energy. We certainly do appreciate it and certainly are blessed through the ministry uh, of music and Chris and Shelley and others and thankful for all the work they put into that here at Grace Community Church. Uh, please turn with me in God's Word to the book of James chapter 2. James chapter 2. Uh, this chapter naturally divides into two parts. It's fairly straightforward, uh, simple. The first part, first half, really, two halves. First half, uh, verses 1 through 13. And the second half, verses 14 through 26. We are in the midst of the first half the first part. And in these verses, we noted last Lord's Day that uh, James addresses a, a subtle, let's call it a subtle, yet sinister sin. Uh, the sin of showing partiality. Um, you know, how do we how do we view the rich uh, versus the poor? How do we view the plain versus the pretty? How do we view the insignificant versus the influential? How do we view, how do we perceive the weak versus the powerful? Let me build on that with another question. What determines how we value people and treat people? How will this person make me look? How will this person benefit me? Will this person increase my visibility and popularity? Will this person elevate my social standing? When we begin to work through those questions, I think we arrive at the, the gist of what it is James is confronting in these 13 verses, the sin of showing partiality or the sin of showing favoritism. You know, you, know, you might very well be thinking to yourself, you know, that really isn't that exciting. It isn't what I came here today to, to hear about. It isn't really at the top of my agenda, but, but, I, but I ask you just to, to 
to pause for a moment, consider, think it through, and, and, and weigh what, what I'm about to say. Simply this. I, I'm suggesting to you that this is an extremely significant subject. I am affirming, really, that it is a very important motif in Scripture. Uh, two reasons. There are a number of reasons. Let me give you these two in case you're a doubter. Even if you're not a doubter, these two are for you as well. As to why we're spending time on this, why we're belaboring it, why James takes us down that path, and why we are committing a couple of, uh, of, of sermons to this. Uh, the first reason is this. The, the subject, this sin of, of showing favoritism, partiality, is important uh, given God's character. And so it's important when we just stop and consider who God is. When we think of God's character, we normally think of his holiness, rightly so. We think of his justice. We celebrate his love. We gravitate to his grace and mercy. And we, yes, we speak of his faithfulness, rightly so. When we, when we think of God's nature, we sometimes think in terms of his eternality or great truths such as his immutability, his unchangeableness, or his sovereignty. Rarely, when we think of God's character, do we consider his impartiality. And yet it's there. It is there from Genesis to Revelation. The Apostle Paul himself affirms it repeatedly in his epistles. There is no partiality with God. There is no favoritism with God. You know, we're celebrating Christmas. We're celebrating the Son of God's coming into this world. I mean, two great, really two great days on the church's calendar. The first is the incarnation, the Son of God coming into this world. The second is Pentecost, the Spirit of God's coming into this world, whereby we have revealed for us in these great historical events that our God is triune. There we have it revealed. God sending His Son, the Son coming, proceeding from the Father, the Father and Son sending the Spirit, the Spirit proceeding from the Father and Son, and there we have our great God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so we're celebrating Christmas. We're celebrating the Son of God's appearing, coming, taking to Himself flesh and blood, our humanity. And as we see the Lord Jesus in Scripture, we have clear confirmation of God's character, and in particular, this point. There is no partiality with God. Think of it. Christ was the same with the prostitute as he was with the Pharisee. He was the same with the Samaritan as he was with the Jew. He was the same with blind Bartimaeus, as he was with rich Zacchaeus. He was the same with the social elite as he was with the social outcast. He was the same with the priests and teachers as he was with the fishermen and farmers. He was the same with the lawyer as he was with the leper. He was the same with the politician as he was with the publican. 
He was the same with the old as he was with the young. He was the same with the wealthy as he was with the poor. He was the same with the strong as he was with the weak. He was impartial. That should grab our attention. Uh, That is our God. With God, there is no partiality. And that is the first reason why this text uh, should grab and hold our attention. And in particular, this commandment that James gives us, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. But there's a second reason why this is important. Here it is. The first reason, yes, it's important given God's character or nature. Secondly, it is important given our struggle. It is important given our struggle. Let's face it. All right? Let's call a spade a spade. We live in a society predicated on favoritism. That doesn't come as a shock to you. I certainly hope it doesn't. If it does, you're the heads in the sand. We live in a society, a culture built on favoritism, partiality. And the big three insofar as our society goes today is this, fame, wealth, and beauty. Our society worships at those three altars, fame, wealth, and beauty. And we as a society show favoritism in these three areas. We are naive if we think we're immune to it in the context of the church. We are not. We are impressed with fame and fortune. We are impressed with power and influence. And we are impressed with beauty and popularity. Why? Here's why. It is because we ourselves crave glory and honor and praise. One preacher has put it as follows. We want, we may not care to admit it, but we want, we want powerful and wealthy and influential people to take notice of us. And we want to avoid the embarrassment that comes from being associated with weak and impoverished and inconsequential people. There's a second reason why this theme is very important. The first, given who God is, his nature. The second, given our own struggle with this sin. It is what James confronts in the first half of chapter 2. Follow along again as I read it for us. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man, In shabby clothing also comes in. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor man. 
Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, by way of review, quickly, if you missed this last Sunday, I encourage you, you can grab a CD and, and, and fill in any of the missing blanks. But just by way of review, four words, coat hangers. So you think of that mess at home and just how helpful coat hangers are just for arranging the closet. Just four coat hangers to clean up Tidy up this text so we can get our minds around it. The first is this, the first word, command. You've got it in verse one. My brother, show no partiality. Show no favoritism. Don't do it. Stop it. As you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. That's it. It's simple. It's straightforward. It's a command. The second word, or rather, if you like the metaphor, coat hanger, is this, the example. He gives us an example, verses 2, 3, 4. Two men walk into the assembly, what we're doing right now. They walk into the gathering of the local church. One is wealthy, one is not. And these brothers in James' day had this tendency to show favoritism to the one over the other, not on the basis of inward grace, but external pomp. This one has wealth. This one does not. Therefore, I am favoring this one, showing partiality to this one. That is the example. It was pertinent in James' day. It is still relevant in our own day. We can certainly expand the perimeter and, and, and include so many other issues here. Not only the question of income but it applies to the question of race. It applies to the question of, of looks, appearance, culture, social standing, social status. So many different parameters we could insert into these verses and apply what James is saying, the same principles and the same truths. But he is really honing in on this question of income, wealth, because it must have been rampant in the church in his day. That's the example. And then you have the reasons he gives for heeding his command. Verses 5, 6, and 7. His reasons are easy to identify because he states each by way of a question. And so reason 1, verse 5. Here's why you should show no partiality. Reason number 1, verse 5. Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world? Oh, just think of how God esteems them to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those 
who love him. There's the first reason. Second reason why you should show no partiality, verse 6, it's another question. But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? And then there's a third reason for heeding his command, show no partiality, verse 7, another question. Are they the rich? not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called. Do you understand? In effect, he is saying, my brothers, do you understand? Do you recognize the answer to each of these questions? If you do, then you will recognize, you will understand that your conduct makes no sense if you get these truths. Therefore, stop it. Stop showing favoritism. And then there is a rebuke, beginning in verse 8, goes all the way through to verse 13. The key point is in verse 9, where he really sums up this rebuke. But if you show partiality, there's that word again that he introduced all the way back in verse 1. But if you do show partiality, please understand, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So if he hadn't hit them between the eyes before this point, he certainly does when he comes to verse 9 and rebukes them soundly for the, for the, for the presence of this sin in their midst, and in particular, the gathering of the local church. And he gives them this rebuke, imploring them, Therefore, to heed his command. Now, as I said last Sunday, what I am doing is taking the text as a whole, and I am deriving 11 compelling reasons why we need to sit up, take notice, and heed James' command, obey James' command. I made it through the first five last Sunday. I'm about to blow through them again right now. Don't panic. If you haven't noticed already, you have sermon notes in the bulletin. And I think I have listed out, written out in full, the first five that we covered last Sunday. There they are. Five reasons why we must not show partiality. Number one, showing partiality makes our religion worthless. That flows out of verses 26 and 27 back in chapter 1. Reason number two, showing partiality contradicts what it means to hold the faith in Christ. Reason number three, showing partiality belittles Christ, the Lord of glory. Reason number four, showing partiality reveals an evil mind. It's right there in verses 2 through 4. And then the fifth reason, showing partiality diminishes what God thinks about his people. What does he think about his people in the fifth verse? Oh, he thinks highly of them. He has chosen them. He has chosen them to be rich in faith. He has chosen them to be heirs of the kingdom. Therefore, value one another accordingly. 
Do not value people. Do not treat people on the basis of these things which are completely insignificant and irrelevant in the sight of God. Oh, but treat them in light of what God holds in high esteem, his people whom he has chosen. He has chosen to be rich in faith, and he has chosen to be heirs of the kingdom. There you have it, the first five from last Sunday. We pick it right up now with number six. The sixth reason, showing partiality dishonors those whom God honors. Look at the very first statement in the sixth verse. But you have dishonored the poor man. You have dishonored by committing this sin. He's saying to his audience, by committing this sin, by showing favoritism, keeping in mind the illustration he gave, rich man, poor man, the two enter in, the one is favored, the one is disfavored. Oh, in doing that, my brothers, he is pointing out to them, you have dishonored the poor man. We can come at this from two different angles. I think it's important we come at it from both and emphasize both. We can come at it firstly simply by recognizing the fact that God honors all people. Where is that affirmed? It's affirmed in James. You just flip over to chapter 3. Take a look at chapter 3. And I'm thinking primarily of what James writes in verse 9. He's speaking of the tongue. He's speaking of our words, our language. And yet he inserts a phrase that is most illuminating. Verse 9. With it, that is with your tongue, we bless our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse people who are made. In the likeness of God. God honors all people. He has honored all people by virtue of the fact that every single individual who has ever lived, is living, will live, was fashioned in the image of God. For that reason, God honors his creatures. God honors all people. God honors all human beings. When we show favoritism to one over another, uh, we are therefore dishonoring that which God honors. This is illuminating. When we see an accomplished athlete, When we see an accomplished athlete at his prime, when we see a homeless teenager, when we see an influential executive, when we see a liberal Democrat, when we see a wealthy businessman, when we see a Muslim woman, when we see an unborn baby, When we see an illegal alien, we are seeing someone who was made and fashioned in the image of God, and they are to be dealt with accordingly. They are to be treated accordingly. They are to be valued accordingly. And when we show favoritism on the basis of things that are insignificant in the sight of God, we are therefore guilty of dishonoring that which God honors. That's one angle at which we can come at that statement, right? 
at the start of verse 6. The other angle is this. You see, it's not only that God honors all people, but He especially honors His people, Christians, those whom He has called to Himself by the Holy Spirit, those whom He has saved through the finished work of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so go back to chapter 1 and look at what James says in verse 18. Of His own will... That is of God's own will, His sovereign will. We've entered into the realm of sovereign grace. He brought us forth. He birthed us. He regenerated us. How? By the word of truth. There's the instrumentality, this book. He made it come alive. The Spirit of God entered in. He transferred us from darkness to light, from death to life, and He gave us eyes to see. And what was the result? that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. We're now, as Christians, we're speaking here of Christians. I'm not speaking of all people. I am drawing a very dark, firm, bold line of distinction, delineation. We are now speaking exclusively of Christians, God's people. They are now new creatures. They are part of a new creation. And as part of the new creation... That image of God in which all people were made, that image that has been corrupted, tarnished, blurried by virtue of the fall, that image is now being renewed. Oh, what does God think of those people in whom He is presently renewing His image? Oh, what does He think of those people whom He has chosen? Those people whom He has redeemed through the precious blood of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Those people whom He has caused to be born again by the Spirit of God. Oh, those people whom He cherishes. Those people whom He receives. Those people whom He welcomes. Those people whom He embraces into His family. How does He perceive them in Christ? How does He view them in Christ? Oh, the honor he heaps upon them. How dare we show partiality then? How dare we take these external irrelevant factors of no consequence in God's estimation whatsoever and make these the determining factors by which we view people, esteem people, or treat people? There's the sixth reason. Oh, showing partiality dishonors those whom God honors. Here's the seventh. Showing partiality makes no sense. That's his point, especially in verses six and seven. But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Now steady on and slow down and take a deep breath, because it is easy for us to misinterpret and misapply what James is saying here. We need, to, you, we, we need to be very aware that when we pick up this book and we read this book, the Bible employs what are known as literary devices, okay? Literary devices. Don't turn away, don't look down, don't try to run and hide. Literary devices. One such literary device is hyperbole. What is hyperbole? It is when we exaggerate something for the sake of 
emphasis. The Bible uses that a lot. The Lord Jesus himself uses that. You, you cannot be my disciple. Christ's words, you cannot be my disciple unless you hate your father, your mother, your brother, and your sister. How am I supposed to understand that? It is a literary device known as hyperbole. He is exaggerating in order to make a point, which is what? Your love, I'm not denying the fact that you should love your father, your mother, your brother, your sister, your son, your daughter. That's not my point. My point is what? It should pale in comparison to your love for me. You're with me. What we have in James, really going back into the fifth verse as well, five, six, and seven, is a literary device known as hyperbole. You look at the fifth verse. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world? Well, does that mean only the poor are saved? Does that mean you have to be below a certain income bracket, income line, in order to be a Christian? No, he's exaggerating. What's his point? That by and large, generally speaking, and it's confirmed as you take a survey of the history of the church, it is the poor and the despised, generally speaking, whom God is pleased to save and call, thereby testifying to the fact that salvation rests and is contingent upon His grace and His grace alone. Generally speaking, we have it again in verse 6. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Verse 7. Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? It's hyperbole. Is James saying every rich man, every rich woman is guilty of that? Is that his point? Is he saying that Joseph of Arimathea, a wealthy man, was not saved? Is he saying that Lydia in Acts 16, a wealthy woman, was not saved? Is he saying that Philemon, to whom Paul wrote, remember concerning Onesiphorus, that he was not saved? No, we have wealthy people in the New Testament, a record of them coming to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They're not oppressing anyone. As a matter of fact, they're giving of their wealth to minister to the poor and to advance the gospel. This is hyperbole, and we've completely missed it. If we think James is teaching that wealth is somehow inherently evil, that it is vice-filled, whereas poverty is somehow inherently virtuous, that is not his point. And if that's the road we go down, which many do today, sadly, they've completely missed the boat. It is a literary device. And what James is really saying is confirmed as we interpret it in the light of Scripture as his whole, the, in a whole. His point is simply this. Look, generally speaking, and remember, he is writing into a specific historical context. Generally speaking, my brothers, when you just stop and think about it, you're oppressed. You've been persecuted. Now, who, by and large, has been responsible for that? Who, by and large, has oppressed you? Well, by and large, it has been the wealthy. He's not saying all wealthy have done that. He's not drawing this direct line between wealth and oppression. That's not his point. Just generally speaking, my brethren, just take stock. You're an oppressed people. Who've been responsible for that? Well, wealth is power. Power is wealth. Well, those who are in positions of power and wealthy, well, by and large, they are the ones who have been oppressing you. And his point is what? So does it really make sense then? In light of your circumstances and what you're going through as a church, as a people, does it really make sense then that one of these wealthy men happens into 
the church gathering of the church, the assembly, to see what's going on. Who knows why? Does it make any sense for you to show such favoritism to him over your brother, the poor despised one whom God has chosen to be rich in faith and heir of the kingdom? Does it make any sense to fall all over yourself and grovel at the feet of this man and make such a big deal out of him? Whereas you despise the poor and the weak and the insignificant and irrelevant and uninfluential. It makes no sense at all. And so what's James' point? Stop it. Show no partiality. And there's reason number seven, because it makes no sense. Here's reason number eight. Showing partiality reveals a lack of love. Into the eighth verse. If you really fulfill the royal law, the king's law, what is the royal law according to the scripture? And here he cites out of the book of Leviticus, right? Is it chapter 19, verse 18 or chapter 18, verse 19? It's back there, the book of Leviticus. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. It is cited five, six times in the gospels. It is cited, quoted at least twice in Paul's epistles. And here you have the summation of the law. Here you have the second great command. Remember that young man comes to the Lord Jesus. What is the greatest command? Christ responds, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so here we have it summarized beautifully. But what is James' point in verse 9? If you show partiality, you are committing sin. You have transgressed the law. Meaning what? You have disobeyed that command. That command, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Meaning what? You are failing to love. Here is what God requires of his people. Here is what God has brought us into. Oh, the law at one time, we'll get there in just a moment. The law at one time was a yoke. It was a burden. It was bondage. We were under its curse. Oh, but God has saved you by grace through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And how do you make that visible? How do you put that into action? How do you show your love for the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? You start by loving your neighbor as yourself. And in this context, as James writes, oh, my brothers, my friends, for you, that simply means stop it. Show no partiality. That if you continue to commit this sin, please understand that it is revealing, it is declaring your lack of love. Here is the ninth reason. Showing partiality transgresses God's law. And so we know the particular law that's in view here, or commandment rather, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now look at how James builds it right through to the verse 11, and this is important. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin, right? And are convicted by the law as transgressors. See, there's the command, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You know what God requires. You have disobeyed what God requires. Therefore, you commit sin. Therefore, you are a transgressor of God's law. Therefore, you are convicted by the law as a whole. Well, hang on a second. All I've done is show a little partiality, favoritism. Surely, in the grand scheme of things, it's not that big of a deal. I haven't murdered anyone. 
I haven't built an, a physical idol recently and prostrated myself before it. And so how can James say that I am condemned now as a transgressor under the law as a whole? I've never disobeyed any of those other commandments. He explains, verse 10, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For the, he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. James' point is this. Yes, ten commandments, but these ten commandments form a unit, the whole law. You break one commandment, you fall under condemnation for the whole. So I'm thinking back a couple of years. Oh, I hope this helps. There I was driving down the road, kicking up a bunch of gravel, a car in front of me or a truck or something. I can't remember the exact details. And a stone shot, fired straight at me, hit the windscreen, and you know what happened, right? There it was, that little hole there, and then a crack from top to bottom. Was the whole windshield broken? Think it through. The windshield was broken. The windshield as a whole had to be replaced. But there was really only what? One crack in it. But you can't divide the windshield into 16 parts and start extracting one and extracting another. Well, this part I'll take out, but then keep the other 15 sixteenths of the windshield. That's not the way it works. It is a whole, it is entirety. And that is James' point. There is the law, God's law, Ten Commandments. And they are summarized in this great commandment, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. If you are showing partiality, do not stop and think to yourself, well, it's not really that big of a deal. At least I haven't done this, and at least I've never done that, or even been tempted to think of doing that. If we go down that road, we've completely missed it. Why? Because the law is a unit. And if we disobey one commandment, we are convicted by the law as transgressors. And so there is the ninth reason. Showing partiality transgresses God's law. Here's the tenth reason for obeying James' command. Showing partiality ignores the coming judgment. Verse 12, so speak. So act, so speak, so act, so speak, so act. I think he's driving us all the way back to chapter one. And really verses 26 and 27, do you remember? Yes, a bridled tongue with what? A, a compassionate heart and an unstained life. So word and deed, word and deed. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged. To whom is he writing, friends? He's not writing to unbelievers. It's not an evangelistic epistle. He is writing to whom? Christians, brothers. So speak and so act are as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Now hold on a second. Back it up. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's just clear, smooth sailing from here to heaven. And there is no judgment. God isn't going to judge me. If that's your thinking, I plead with you to read verse 12 again. So speak and so act 
as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. There is a day of judgment coming. Those who are in Christ and outside of Christ. Those who are sheep and those who are goats. Those who are saved and those who are condemned. Those who are justified and those who are damned. They will all stand before God. And there will be a judgment. Oh, but understand a couple of things. Firstly, please understand this. That we as God's people will be judged under the law of liberty. What is the law of liberty? Why has the law now become to us who are in Christ a law of liberty? Three reasons quickly. Number one, we are free from the rigor of the law. Why are we free from the rigor of the law? Because Christ has fulfilled it, living his perfect life. We are free, secondly, from the curse of the law. Why are we free from the curse of the law? Because Christ has paid its penalty. But please understand, thirdly, we are not free from obeying the law. The law is the revelation of God's nature. The law is the revelation of God's character. The law, therefore, is by definition good and right and holy and acceptable. And it is for us something that shows and demonstrates who God is. And the law is given to us out of love. And yes, having been brought to God through faith, in Christ Jesus, based on his substitutionary sacrifice upon Calvary's cross, my great concern becomes what? Knowing the will of this God who has saved me. And I discover his will revealed in the law. And this law has become a law of liberty. And I am now free to obey his law, to do his will out of love and gratitude. And notice secondly, when you think of what James is saying here, notice secondly, that yes, we will all appear justified and condemned, saved and damned. We will all stand before God and we will all be judged, those of us who are believers under the law of liberty. But please notice secondly, that on that day, what kind of judgment are we talking about? Careful, careful, careful. Hear these words, please. The evil deeds of unbelievers will confirm that they deserve hell. The evil deeds of unbelievers, everything will be exposed. Every thought, every emotion, every word, every action. And their evil deeds will confirm that they deserve hell. The good deeds of believers will confirm that they are in Christ. Therefore, there is no saving merit in these deeds. But these good deeds, these good works, are visible confirmation and testimony to the fact that we are in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is a day that is coming. And so James, he is pleading with his audience, look, think of that day. Remember that you are going to be judged under the law of liberty, and therefore, so speak, and so act. Word and deed, word and deed, word and deed. 
as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. And now the eleventh reason, bringing us to the final verse, showing partiality separates us from God's mercy. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. There's an echo there from the Beatitudes, isn't there? Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. James' point, I think we can sum it up as follows. Showing mercy. Us showing mercy. Showing compassion. Refraining from showing partiality. Proves that we have experienced mercy. Showing mercy demonstrates. Showing mercy shows, clarifies, declares, makes plain, makes obvious that we have actually tasted mercy. That we have actually experienced mercy. To lack mercy in one's relationship with others declares, on the other hand, that we don't know God's mercy. You think of that tremendous parable that the Lord Jesus told of those two servants. We'll call them servant one and servant two. Belonging to the same master. And uh, servant one owed his master, let's just say a million dollars, right? And he doesn't have a penny. He doesn't have two coins to rub together. And he goes to his master and his master shows mercy. And he forgives him his debt. First servant goes out, he finds servant number two. Servant number two owes servant number one $10. And servant number one freaks out. And what does he do? He throws servant number two in, in prison. Until he, until you pay my debt. Well, word soon filters back to the master of both servants. And the master calls back servant number one. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant? just as I had on you, shouldn't you have had mercy? Come on, be reasonable. Shouldn't you have had mercy to your fellow servant as I had on you? And because you did not, what does the master do? He takes servant number one, he casts him into prison, and then the Lord Jesus drives the parable home with this statement, This is how my heavenly Father will treat you. This is how my heavenly Father will treat you. For a failure, an unwillingness to be merciful. Oh, mercy tasted. Mercy experienced. Mercy enjoyed at the foot of the cross will always translate into mercy expressed. You know, let me just deviate from the path ever so slightly, my friend, because you know, it, it is just entirely possible and it is so applicable, especially this time of year, Christmas. We're gathering with people and many of us gathering with people with whom perhaps we'd rather not gather, but it's kind of obligatory this time of year. Family members, friends, cousins, uncles, people perhaps who have said something who have done something, have looked at you the wrong way, 
apply it, even in the context of this local church. There he is, there she is, toward the back or toward the front. He looked at me the wrong way three months ago. He spoke to me the wrong way 13 and a half years ago. He treated me this way or she did this thing three weeks ago. And there you sit stewing. There you sit it fermenting. There you sit just kind of taking that sweet morsel in your mouth and sucking it and enjoying it all you can. And there you harbor that resentment. That person did this. That person did that. Oh, my friends, remember God's mercy to you. Oh, remember what you were before he found you and plucked you out of the muck and the mire. Oh, and take note of what you are now, his chosen, his beloved, chosen to be rich in faith and heirs of a kingdom. And I plead with you, please be merciful. Show mercy. Show compassion. And may that compassion flow from Calvary's cross where your heavenly Father has been so compassionate with you, bringing it back to James' particular situation. He's thinking in terms of rich and poor. All of these ways in which we differentiate between people. And in so doing, we fail to show mercy. And he's driving home his point. Do you not understand that when you do that, you're being unmerciful by showing such favoritism? And if you're so showing, demonstrating by your actions and your attitudes towards other such a deplorable lack of mercy, then what does that really say? I don't care what you say. What does that really say concerning your understanding and appreciation of how merciful God has been to you. Do you get his point? Do you see what he's driving home? Oh, I know it hits home hard, doesn't it? You think I enjoy preaching this? I do not enjoy preaching texts like this. I would just as quickly skim over into something far more encouraging and uplifting than rather hit myself between the eyes with texts like these. But there it is. Oh, but I'm so thankful. You know why I'm so thankful? James ends the section on a positive note. Finally, thank you, James. You've dragged me down. You've beat me up. You've left me black and blue. And then finally, at the end of verse 13, mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Here is how I have applied that phrase, and I think I've got James' mind in this. I think I've got the intent of what he is saying. Here is how I've applied that phrase this past week. I see the Ten Commandments. There they are. I see them. I see that I am required. God, my King, my Creator, commands me to keep the royal law. I am to love my neighbor as myself. And I see, I'll confess to you publicly, I see that I fail miserably. I fail miserably. For starters, I show partiality. I show favoritism. Therefore, I am guilty of breaking this law. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Therefore, I am committing sin and I'm convicted by the law as a transgressor. Oh, but I see that Christ has obeyed the law for me. And I see that Christ has borne the penalty that I deserve for breaking the law. And I see that God offers to remove my debt if I come to him through Christ, and I 
believe. And in the Lord Jesus, I find forgiveness. And in the Lord Jesus, as I muddle along through life by the Spirit of God, doing what I can do, seeking in sincerity to know my Father's will and to do it, I am so thankful that even my least strivings, even my weak attempts are made so acceptable and beautiful in the sight of God through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm driven back to Calvary's cross, and I'm reminded to celebrate a tremendous truth from a hymn, oh, I grew up singing, here's a stanza from it, mercy there was great, and grace was free, pardon there was multiplied to me. There, my burdened soul found liberty at Calvary. Our Father in heaven above, we thank you for your gospel. We thank you for the good news of salvation. For all those who turn from their sin, repent of their sin, and come in childlike faith to you through your beloved Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that there is indeed forgiveness of sins. There is indeed the hope of eternal life. There is indeed blessed communion and fellowship with you. Our Father, we pray for any unbelievers in our midst. You know them. You know the number of hairs upon their heads. You are intimately acquainted with every facet and area of their lives. There are no secrets before you in your presence. And we pray that you would cause them, lead them to take stock to number their days, to remember that a day of judgment is coming and impress upon them that now, while there is opportunity, to find your grace and mercy which flow so fast and free in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that you would take your word, again, giving us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to apply, and may all this be for your glory and the glory of your Son, the Lord Jesus, in whose name we ask it. Amen.